0: Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with water of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on Him who would come after Him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. And he went into the synagogue and boldly spoke, or spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrrhenius. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you that Luke has left for us an inspired history of how the New Testament church shaped the early Roman Empire. God, how out of Jerusalem, a fledgling group of men, twelve ordinary guys, fishermen, Tax collectors, zealots, rebels, how you took these men and women who were early at the tomb, who felt so crushed and felt so defeated, and three days later they marveled at a resurrected Lord. And within 40 days, they were empowered by the Spirit of God to take the gospel to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. And God, how you took a church that was born out of adversity and exploded it over the Roman Empire through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, you have left us a recorded, accurate, inerrant history so that we can model ourselves when we want to plant a church in North Utah, in Harrisville, Plain City, Pleasant View, Ogden. God, we see what Paul did here, and God, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same Jesus, the same gospel, the same Holy Spirit empowers your church. So I pray today, God, that you will take this text. I pray, Father, that you will encourage us. And I pray, Father, that you will help us to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. And children, if you want to scamper out. or you can stay We have here is a inspired record of Paul's church planting work in the city of Ephesus. I really didn't know how to title a sermon. I think that's more of a man's concoction anyway to come up with some kind of fancy title for a sermon to catch your attention and to have a rousing introduction so that make sure that you all listen up. Well, I don't have either one. Don't have a rousing introduction and don't have a fancy title. The best I could come up with is that Paul believed in saturating an area with the gospel. For the magnification of the gospel and for the multiplication of believers. He took every opportunity to saturate an area with the gospel. We see this in Athens. We see this in Corinth. We see this everywhere Paul has gone. And I see three different sections in this passage, three different groups. One were disciples that needed to hear more about Jesus Some, he was sowing evangelism in the synagogue. And the third group of people, he was training them to be reproducers. And that's really what every Christian should be involved in. We should be involved in all of those processes. We should be sowing. We should be reaping. And we should be reproducing. And as a church, corporately, we should be doing all those things. As a church, we should be sowing the gospel. As a church, we ought to see people being reaped in harvest and people coming to Christ. And as a church, we need to be reproducing new believers. And eventually, North Valley Bible Church needs to be reproducing another church. Wouldn't that be exciting for us as a church to take a mission trip somewhere and saying, we are part of a church plant somewhere else other than Utah. That would be exciting. And it can happen. It happened in the New Testament. It can happen here. Paul met some disciples. But I want to give you a little bit of background about the city of Ephesus before we dive into our text, because Ephesus is a unique place. Ephesus was on the Castor River. It was a crossroads of trade routes. It was like a gem in the Roman Empire. It was a pearl. It was a beautiful city. It was a magnificent city. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was found in the city of Ephesus. It was the temple of Diana. Could you imagine Paul taking the gospel right to the heart of paganism? People traveled all over Asia Minor just to come and see this temple, 420 feet long, 60 feet wide, column after column of pillars that were 64 feet high, four feet apart. Today, you can go and see the ruins. All there's left is one pillar, but they've done a reconstruction of this temple. It was incredible. The the theater, you can actually walk into the theater where Paul was issued out of in the city of Ephesus. You could walk the streets with the emporium and all the shops were. This was an incredible city. It was the worship of the Roman goddess Diana or the Greek goddess Artemis. It was a female worship cult and how fertility and prostitution and all elucid immorality was involved in this pagan cult. It was filled with mysterious secret initiation rites in these temples. And it's interesting, when Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians, he talks about the mysteries that are found in Christ. Mysteries that are not reserved only For those who've gone through the initiation rites, mysteries that are not just reserved for those who are insiders into the temple cultic rituals. These mysteries are found for every one of us in the person of Christ. In fact, Paul starts out that letter to the Ephesians, and he says, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus just as He chose us before the foundations of the world in Christ Jesus to be holy and to be blameless before Him in love. All of these mysteries, all these wealth of knowledge are found in the person of Christ. And He's taking this message into the heart of paganism. Now, there's three groups that Paul addresses here in this passage. And the first one are people who are disciples, And Paul is harvesting somebody who's already been discipled. Now, normally, the order, and not normally, it's always this order, it's you sow seed. And then you watch the seed grow, and then you harvest, and then you reproduce. But sometimes you are lucky enough and fortunate enough to meet people who are ready to reap. Isn't that a blessing when you meet somebody who's already been witnessed to? And that's low-hanging fruit, and you can just grab that fruit and and invite them to Christ, and they've already been prepared. I haven't met too many people like that. It seems like I always find the hard nuts. (laughs) Or I'm tilling in soil that's like concrete. But hopefully one day, Susan, there's going to be 25 kids that leave Capstone And they're going to say, I remember a Bible teacher who said something about that. And somebody's going to be able to harvest some of this fruit. I don't know. I'm praying to that end. But God does all of this. It's all of His work. And sometimes you meet people that have already been discipled and they are ready just to be evangelized. In fact, the Bible tells us that we ought to disciple people to Christ. A lot of times we think of evangelism as this one-time event where you give somebody the gospel and you walk away. Well, they didn't get saved. Well, that's not the way it usually works. In fact, Jesus often discipled people who were unbelievers. You're saying, what? Yes, in John chapter 6, Jesus was discipling people who were lost. We ought to be involved in discipling people whatever stage they're at. These men had been discipled by John the Baptist. Somebody had been working in their life. Someone had been preparing, been preparing the soil. In John chapter 6, Jesus finally comes to a crossroads with those disciples and he says, unless you eat my flesh and unless you drink my blood, you have no life in yourself. And that was a hard saying. And it says from that time many of His disciples no longer walked with Him. So in other words, what I'm trying to say to you today is that you can be discipling people to faith in Christ. In John chapter 8, Jesus again addresses some disciples who were not yet believers in Him. And He says to them, if you will trust and believe the Son, the Son will make you free. And they said, we've already been free. We're Abraham's sons. And Jesus said, no, you've been in bondage. Whoever you give yourselves over to serve, that is your master. And if you remain in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And so there, there was a mark and a break again for those who would be discipled as believers and those who would be no longer walking with Christ. Well, Paul meets some disciples. Now, how can you and I work with people who've already been prepared? Well, we can engage these people in prudent questions. Questions are a powerful tool. They open up people's mind to discussion. It lowers their their walls of defense, so to speak. And we see here Paul doing that, he gives them a question, he he notices them, he he meets them, he finds some disciples, and in verse 2 it says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? What a wonderful diagnostic question. Paul wanted to know where they were at in this process of discipleship. If you ask the right question at the right time, it will open up spiritual conversations. Someone who is teachable, a disciple, someone who wants to learn. We see Jesus doing this at the village of Sychar. He engages with a Samaritan woman who already had some spiritual background. She already had spiritual knowledge. C.S. Lewis calls these kind of people, people that have been understood or people that understand what he called the natural law or the law of conscience, People who already have a sense of morality, have a sense of right and wrong, have a sense of Christian ideals, although they do not know it. And there are people like that all over Ogden. I was up walking on the trails just a couple weeks ago and got into a discussion with a man walking his dog, and we got talking about the mountains. We got talking about the beautiful sky. And the next thing I know, we are talking about a Creator. This man wasn't a believer, but he already had these things in his mind, and I started asking him questions. How do you think we got here? What do you think the purpose of life is? Next thing I know, we're talking about Jesus. And this man had been reading a little bit of the Bible, and all it took was one question to say, this guy's already been prepared. And I was able to bring a little bit more light into his life. Now, I don't know if I'll see him again. I'm praying my other son, who's up there on the canal road running all the time, he'll bump into him. But we can do this naturally. Jesus did this at the well of Sychar. He naturally engaged the woman, began to ask questions, and the conversation just opened up. It's interesting that the woman said this. She said, we know that Messiah is coming, and when He comes, He will tell us all things. She already had some insight from the Samaritan Pentateuch. That's all that the Samaritans had. All they believed in was the first five books of the Bible. But that was enough for Jesus to take that and then lead her to salvation. And then she went and told the Samaritan women. And then you know what Jesus told his disciples? He said, you are entering into somebody else's labors. Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white into harvest. So sometimes all it takes is a poignant question at the right time, the right person to open up spiritual conversation. And this is what Paul does here by asking that question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? Their response was, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. You know another thing questions do? They help you diagnose where to go in this conversation. Have you ever gone into the doctor's office and the doctor just hands you a prescription and says, here, this is what you need? You say, wait a minute. You don't even know what my problems are. You could probably just look at me and tell what my problems are. But a good doctor will ask question after question after question. I went in for a... a a checkup this week and and they were asking me about my medication and They were asking me how I felt and how I was sleeping all these questions a battery of questions. So they wanted to know What to do with my medication whether they need to decrease it whether they need to increase it and it was through questions A good doctor does this doesn't he my son who's a nurse? He's a, he's a great nurse. You know why? Because Jordan is a good listener And as believers, we need to be good listeners, and we need to be able to ask good questions. Questions are a wonderful tool to open up dialogue. Three things I wanted just to to give you today about questions. Questions are non-threatening. Your audience then becomes a participant. Participant. These men that Paul met, they became a participant and they're engaging and they're talking to one another. It's not like one is the leader and the others are just following line. It shows a sense of equality. I'm not one-upping you. I'm not arguing with you. I'm not trying to prove my point with you. So questions are non-threatening. Questions need to communicate humility and an interest in the other person. So questions... They need to be non-threatening. They need to communicate our humility and an interest in that person. And thirdly, questions need to encourage the listener to self-discover latent truth. Now, what do I mean by that? Latent truth. Truth that's already in their mind, in their subconscious, but they don't even know it's there. You see, these men had some latent truth about a Messiah coming. And all Paul did was help arouse what they already knew. Believe me, people, today, my friends, my church family, (laughs) I'm not preaching at you, y'all, my friends. People already have a conscience People have a God-shaped place in their heart that they already know about. And all you and I need to do is sort of arouse that out of their consciousness. Latent truth that they already know. And that was what Paul was doing. It helps people discover that truth for themselves. And you know what that question does? When they give the answer, it solidifies it in their mind because you didn't tell it to them. They self-discovered it. And they become the owner of that new truth, even though they might have had it the whole time. And that's all Paul was doing. They already knew about a Messiah. They knew a Savior was coming because John the Baptist had told them about it. So questions are how one of the means by which we can reap in this process. Now, I'm not going to say much about the the Holy Spirit here coming, because that's, I don't think that's Luke's intention of this passage. I'll do, I do want to mention it because it's something that we ought to address in the book of Acts. So I'm going to kind of take a, a five minute detour on what was going on here with Paul and the Holy Spirit, because that seems like something different. We don't see that happening today. We don't, see people getting baptized and then a pastor or somebody laying hands on people and all of a sudden they start speaking in tongues and prophesying. What was this all about? The book of Acts is descriptive and also prescriptive. In other words, it's a history describing what happened. It's not always prescribing what we ought to do. Now, how do we know this passage is description rather than prescriptive? Because... There's four accounts where the Holy Spirit comes in this form in the book of Acts. All four of them are different. So it's not prescribing a method by which we receive the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, no one laid hands on anybody. It was a promise from Jesus, don't leave Jerusalem for you will be endowed with power from on high. So that was, we don't wait for Pentecost to happen. That was a one-time event and it's already happened. We don't have to wait for Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is already here. John chapter 7, verse 37 says this, Jesus said, whoever is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. For out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. This he said concerning the Spirit, whom those believing would receive, for the Father had not yet glorified the Son. So when that event happened, that happened on the day of Pentecost. Now, it happened again. Stephen and Philip, I think it was Philip, Philip, goes to the city of Samaria, preaches the gospel to them. This is a different ethnic group of people. What happens then? The apostles come and lay hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. No mention of tongues, no mention of prophesying, but they receive the Holy Spirit. That's when your old man wants to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit and Peter says, "Yeah, you got no part in this. <laughs> You're barking up the wrong tree. Uh So that's another account. Totally different. Then we've got Acts chapter 10. The Holy Spirit comes in a completely different way. Why? Because Peter is going now to a different ethnic group. He's going to Gentiles. And so God's going to do something completely different. And it blows the minds of the Jews. While Peter is preaching to Gentiles, I mean, he doesn't even give an invitation. He doesn't even say, raise your hand right now and say this prayer if you want to receive Jesus. People get saved because they're hearing the word of God. And Peter says, do you hear what's going on? These guys are speaking in tongues. And and that wasn't for the Gentiles. That was for the Jews. The Jews needed that proof that they were being incorporated into the body of Christ. And so he says, who can forbid water that these shouldn't be baptized? They've received the Holy Spirit just like we did at the beginning, just like over there at Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus was crucified. And so now we've got another group of people, completely different again, disciples of John the Baptist, who need to know that the Messiah has come. The Messiah has died. The Messiah has been raised to to, to new life. And that the gospel is for them. And so Paul lays his hand. The interesting thing on all four of those, those accounts in the book of Acts, the apostles were present in all four of them. Why is that significant? Because of Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we have been built, past tense, and the heiress tense in the Greek, means it's a one time finished event. The church has been built on the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. What is happening in the book of Acts? The book of Acts is this historical bridge between the epistles and the gospels showing us the apostles laying the foundation of the church, and we are still building on that today. And everyone who believes in Christ now receives the Holy Spirit by faith. And that's taught throughout the New Testament. All right, that was my... Five-minute break that took ten minutes. (laughs) Dennis is smiling back there. All right. Now let's go to the sewing part. This is one verse, one verse alone. And my entire point comes from this verse, verse 8. He, Paul, went into the synagogue, and what did Paul do? He spoke boldly. For three months, how did he speak boldly? Two pair of, uh, two participles, reasoning and persuading. You don't have to be a great grammarian to study the Bible. Look for words that end with ing because they are modifying the verb. What did Paul do? He spoke how? He spoke boldly. How did he do that? By two things, reasoning and persuading. It's a beautiful balance. I call this... The balance between science and art, the balance between fact and feeling, the balance between logic and passion. You err on one side and you will have a net result of zero. If all you do is give people facts and argue with them, you will never see them into the kingdom of heaven. And if all you do is give them feelings and mushy emotion, they've got nothing to believe on. And Paul spoke boldly, and he had this perfect balance between reason and persuasion. So let's look at this. But first of all, before we get to that, I want to just talk about the need for boldness. I was talking with Brother Rick last Sunday, and people often think that Rick is just this bulldog bold evangelist right Bonnie he just he just loves to witness and he had a confession he says Patrick he says that's not really a natural thing for me to do and I don't know too many people it's just the natural thing to do just to start talking to a stranger and, and begin an evangelistic conversation it's just not a natural thing none of us are bold naturally that way some people are I, I suppose but but not many but boldness is the ability to speak freely. That's what the Greek word means. It means confident. It means to have full assurance. Now, those things I can have. I can have full assurance. Why? First Timothy says this, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him until that day. I know whom I believed, Paul said. So I can have confidence in my message, Paul's told to the Thessalonians, My exhortation doesn't come from deceit. It doesn't come from human wisdom. And you know how shamefully I was treated at Philippi. And yet I was bold in Christ because my gospel does not come from air. So I can have boldness because I am confident in this message. And Paul was confident in the message, not so much in himself. In fact, when Paul was in Corinth, he told the Corinthians, I was there with you in weakness. I was in much trembling, and I was in much fear. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You know what? If you have fear and trembling when you're witnessing, you're in good company. You're in the company of the Apostle Paul. That's good to know, isn't it? Courage is the virtue of overcoming your natural fear. Now, what can give you that kind of boldness? Two things, I talked about one, the certainty of our message, but two more things. One is the weightiness of our message. Think about how weighty our message is. Our message is the difference between life and death. Our message is the difference between eternity with Christ and an eternity in hell separated from Christ. There is nothing more weighty than the message of Jesus Christ. Paul said that he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading, look at this preposition, concerning. Concerning what? Concerning the things of the kingdom of God. There is nothing more weighty than the kingdom of God, Jesus came preaching the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, preaching a message of repentance. That little phrase concerning the kingdom of God, it's an idea of a new era, a new epoch, a new time in history has come with the advent of Jesus Christ. A new era where you don't have to travel to Jerusalem. You don't have to take on Judaism. There is a new heir. The kingdom of God has arrived. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Paul was persuading people concerning the kingdom of God, a weighty message. At the start of World War II, C.S. Lewis was invited to speak at a chapel at Oxford University. And before he got up to speak, he had just heard on the BBC, or maybe it was, I don't know, maybe he heard it through radio anyway, that England had just declared war on Germany as he was getting ready to speak. Germany had invaded Poland. Poland. They had been warned, if you take this initiative, England will declare war. Here he is getting ready to speak among students at Oxford University in the chapel. And as he went in, his first words were this. We have to inquire whether there is really any legitimate place for the activities of a scholar in a world such as this. C.S. Lewis understood the magnitude of what was happening. But more importantly, C.S. Lewis knew the magnitude and the importance of the human soul. He went on to say, That is, comma, we have always to ask, we always have to answer this question How can we at Oxford be so frivolous and so selfish? as to think about anything except the salvation of the human soul. Speaking to scholars, speaking to the intelligentsia of his day, the the, the prestigious University of Oxford, and he says, how could we be so frivolous to think about scholarship and not to put first salvation of the human soul? And then he went on to say, and we at this moment... At this moment of history, we have to answer an additional question. How can we be so frivolous and so selfish as to think about anything but the war? It's interesting that C.S. Lewis put the human soul first in that. I think this is why war only heightened for him the reality of the brevity of life and the certainty of death and it brought the magnitude. What gave him that kind of boldness to go into Oxford and say that? What gave him that kind of boldness? He knew the weightiness of the message. And my friend, when we think about the weightiness of the message, that will give you and I the unction to speak when we don't feel like we ought to speak or like we could speak. A second thing that Paul, and we don't get it from this passage, but the, certainly the power of our message. Now let's talk about reasoning in science. And I know I'm probably going long. I'm just a windbag. I know it. Okay. Reasoning. Here we go. I'm going to talk about these two words, reasoning and persuading. And then I'm going to try to tie it up. Reasoning. What is reasoning? The Greek word is dialogue. It means to mingle one thought with another thought. It's logically laying out facts. It's reasonably, it's reasonable, <laughs> in a reasonable fashion, to discuss an argument by disputing with evidence. People are never converted without the evidence of the truth. People are never converted without the gospel message. They need to hear about Christ, they need to understand their sin, they need to understand the resurrection and his justification. We need to reason people with the Bible, but reason alone very rarely leads people to Christ. You can win the argument and still lose the soul. When I was at Liberty University studying in the Divinity School, my favorite professor beyond far, beyond anybody, was a guy named Dr. Gary Habermas. And I loved, loved to be in his classes because he He was a teacher that just taught you with passion. I mean, he he was the smartest guy I've ever met in my life. He has written so many books on the resurrection. He is probably the world's leading authority on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He can take you from text to text to text to text and show you biblically that within three years, there was already a oral tradition, if not a written tradition, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, why is that significant? Myths take hundreds and hundreds of years to start. They don't start in three years, and they don't start in the very city where somebody was crucified. They start somewhere else on the other side of the earth. And Gary Habermas can take you through that and boom, 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 and just give you fact after that. But when Gary Habermas's wife passed away he became a completely different professor. He spoke about the resurrection with a new zeal, a new passion that would persuade us students. I mean, you would walk out of his class with a bucket of water and you were ready to charge hell with it. <laughs> because that's the kind of guy he was. While he, When I was at school there, We would always pray for him because we knew he was on the road a lot of times, and he was always debating this guy named Anthony Flew. I didn't know much about him, but I started to research him. Anthony Flew was the leading atheist of his day. He and Gary Habermas developed an incredible friendship, and they wouldn't argue. They would have the warmest conversations. I love watching their debates. They would just agree with each other. That's a really good point, Gary. I see where you're going with that, Andy. And by the end of Andy Flew's life, he was converted to a theist. Now, I don't know if he ever trusted Christ, but he publicly came out and said, I do believe in an absolute being of God. And I got to think that Gary Habermas led him to Christ before his deathbed. That's at least my hope. Now, I said all that because I want to talk to you about the art of persuasion. Jesus rarely dumped a load of facts on people. Jesus often reasoned with them. He would engage them with their imagination. He would persuade them with parables and give them word pictures. In fact, when people would come to him with questions, he would ask them a question, and they would go away being convinced that he was right without him ever having to point a finger on what they, why they were wrong. The Greek word to persuade means to make friends. It means to win over one's favor. It means to gain one's will, to seek to win one, to strive to please one so as to induce them to believe through your words. And this was often Paul's method. When Paul went to Rome, they appointed him a day when he would meet with all the Jewish leaders of Rome. And they came to his lodging, and he expounded and he testified about the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets. And how long did he do that? From morning until evening. A passionate persuader of men. Some of you are students of history. And you'll remember a famous saying by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And he said this in one of his speeches, the only thing that we have to fear is fear itself. Now, that was a persuasion to the American public to rally behind the war effort. How effective do you think he would have been if he said, I don't think we should be afraid. It will only hinder the war effort. But instead, he said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I can remember that, the importance of persuasion. And lastly, verse 9 and 10, reproducing. We don't have time to develop this. I'm way, way past time, so forgive me for that. But verse 10, 9 and 10, I want to point out three verbs. Paul withdrew, Paul reasoned, and he continued it daily, and he did it for two years. And what was the result? The result was all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Reproducing church. A man named Epiphras came to that school of Tyrannius and started a church in Colossae. Another church was started in Heropolis. Another church was started in Laodicea. And the seven churches of Asia Minor sprang out of a school of Tyrrhenius where Paul withdrew to those who were teachable he poured His life into people who could reproduce themselves. And then the Word of God spread throughout all of Asia. Luke, 16, Luke 6.40, Jesus said this, A disciple is not above his master, his teacher. But every student who is perfectly trained will be just like his master. That is the goal of North Valley Bible Church. John 15 and verse 18, Jesus said, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and I have appointed you that you should go forth and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. 2 Timothy 2.2, my life's verse for ministry. Paul said this, Timothy, commit thou my son... The things that you've heard from me to faithful men who can teach others also. The importance of continuing and constantly teaching yields lasting results. So, as a church, as a believer, we need to be sowers, we need to be reapers, and we need to be reproducers. We need to show boldness. We need to have balance between reason and persuading. We need to ask good questions. And we need to be prepared to ask ourselves, are we so selfish and are we so frivolous that we are engaged in so many other things other than the souls of men? I hope our priority will be the souls of men. Let's close in prayer. Father, we want to thank You today that Paul left such an indelible example for all of us, Lord. Thank You, Lord, that church planting, evangelism, and seeing people come to Christ is not a complex and complicated thing. It takes people who are faithful to People who are conscious and aware of lost people around them, and people who are committed to being a disciple. And Father, I pray that you'll help North Valley Bible Church to accomplish this mission for your glory and for your kingdom's sake. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.